News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, lots of developments overnight when it comes to what is happening in Ukraine and everywhere else in the world, particularly the response to the United States. So let's get an update now with the help of Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. What is the latest out of the United States? So look, there's actually a lot that has gone on just uh, since the sun started to rise in D.C. The absolute latest um, having to do with diplomatic relations. The United States has shut its embassy in Belarus this morning. It has authorized American diplomats to leave Russia. Uh, and the uh, administration is also set to announce that it's going to ban transactions with companies from doing business with the Bank of Russia or the Russian National Wealth Fund or the Ministry of Finance. All of this is an attempt to show that, A, they are severing diplomatic ties with countries that are acting aggressively, but number two, they are actively working to put economic pressure on Russia in the hopes that it is going to pull President Putin back from the ledge. And what is the Biden administration saying about these potential peace talks that are happening? So, look, uh, you know, they understand that they're happening. Uh, you know, if we're hearing from the Ukrainian uh, president himself saying that he doesn't believe there's going to be a breakthrough, you know, it's not for the Biden administration or anyone else to say, look, something else is going to happen. I think they are simply watching this uh, with a keen eye to see what goes next. But, you know, it is interesting to think that as these conversations are taking place, you're watching this massive column uh, of vehicles move down from the Belarus area towards Kiev. So, I mean, you know, whether this is this is Vladimir Putin, you know, using this as an opportunity to say, look, I'm still trying to be in control here. The White House is very closely concerned about this, especially given those that, that kind of nuclear rhetoric we heard over the weekend. Okay, and w- there's a lot going on here where the United States clearly has, has focused on building allies in this fight, and it feels like more and more allies are coming on board, and now they're also targeting Belarus. Yeah, and, and that is because Belarus has become, uh, you know, a, a proxy state to uh, Russia. Over the weekend, the Belarusian government uh, held a referendum and they opted to renounce their non-nuclear status to say that they may be willing to start holding nuclear weapons for Russia. This is obviously an escalation, not just in terms of this conflict in Ukraine, but now the broader uh, security threat that runs uh, right across the European Union, which includes a number of NATO allies in direct territory uh, with Belarus. So the United States now targeting Belarus. It's already been sanctioned once before it's you know facing sanctions from the European Union uh, and a lot of European countries right now uh, and, and now Belarus being so firmly um, um, kind of tied in with how Moscow is moving forward they are also facing a diplomatic pinch and an economic pinch here uh, as, as they themselves prep soldiers to potentially move into Ukraine as an auxiliary deployment okay so that's going on what's the political climate like domestically then in the United States for all of these moves that the Biden administration is making? Look, it's messy. Uh, you know, politics in the U.S. is messy. Uh, you know, when you're talking about things domestically, when you put foreign policy in there, it becomes uh, tricky. The, the Republican Party is still split on how they are reacting and dealing to what President Biden is doing. Much of the Republican Party wants to see some kind of assistance and aid for Ukraine. They are complaining that they don't feel this has been done fast enough. It's revisionist history. We have to remember under President Donald Trump, the United States backed away from providing military assistance to uh, President Zelensky all in and around the time um, uh, of President Trump's impeachment. So Republicans are really trying to figure this out. 
overall with the broad American public, there still is an interest here in assisting Ukraine, watching the United States provide financial and logistical assistance. There is still not an interest to have uh, the U.S. get involved militarily, which it's not going to happen, at least on the ground in Ukraine. But there is a fear amongst the broad American public that this could potentially escalate and suck the United States into some kind of broader war. And that is a growing concern around the country. Right. But for now, does it, the American public is on side with the support? They're on side with the support of helping and assisting uh, Ukraine. We saw that over the weekend with a number of rallies that took place around the country in support uh, of Ukraine. There is um, a, a kind of a wish for the Biden administration to move forward the best that it can doing so without putting U.S. military troops on the ground. Okay, well, lots more still to come. Reggie, thank you. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. How does the current Russia-Ukraine conflict fit into history? Is the past repeating itself here? Great piece in the Globe and Mail over the weekend written by author Margaret McMillan. Now, her books include one of my all-time favorites called Paris 1919, Six Months That Changed the World, but also a book called War, How Conflict Shaped Us. And that very much puts what is going on right now overseas into a bit more historical context. So she joins us now to talk more about it. Margaret Millen is a professor emeritus of history at the University of Toronto, an emeritus professor of international history, and the former warden of St. Anthony's College at the University of Oxford. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, good morning. When you see what is happening there, does, does your mind immediately go to, well, this was inevitable given the history of the situation? I don't think it was inevitable. I think it's a war that was brought about and willed by one man, and that's Vladimir Putin. Um, he's been talking about it. He's been criticizing Ukraine. He's been claiming that genocide has been carried out against Russians in Ukraine for some time now. I think it's his war. And where does it fit into history? Like, why is he so obsessed, does it seem like, with Ukraine? You have to understand his history, I think. I mean, he thinks in a different historical framework than we do. He thinks of Russia as a great power, even though it's clearly not today. Its economy is, is in all sorts of trouble, and it's got other problems. But he remembers the Russia of Peter the Great. I mean, he goes back to the 17th century. He goes back earlier. And he sees himself, actually, as a successor to Peter the Great, and he wants to recreate that Russia. He wants it to be a great power, and he sees Ukraine as being part of Russia. He, he can't accept its independence. Does he view it as well as protecting his you know, tribe, so to speak? Because you've, you've written that as well, that protecting your tribe has been the source of conflict and war throughout human history. Well, he sees Ukraine as his tribe, and he sees Ukrainians as his tribe. He has this view. He wrote a long essay last summer, which I don't recommend because it's really heavy reading, but he wrote a long essay last summer in which he said Ukrainians and Russians are one spiritual people. They're joined in a spiritual bond. I mean, this is not true. I mean, I think it's quite clear that Ukrainians see themselves as a people who want to determine their own fate. I mean, I think if Putin's done anything, he's actually increased Ukrainian nationalism enormously. Yeah, what is different then about this time as opposed to 2014 or 2008 when he tried to annex parts of Georgia? I think he's prepared to go further this time. I mean, Georgia, he didn't have to worry much about because Georgia was, was so outnumbered. And when he took Crimea, I think 90% of the population 
approve of that. A lot of them were, were Russian speaking and looked towards Russia. I don't think he expected that he would get the resistance that he's getting this time. And it's quite clear that his army is not, his armed forces are not moving as quickly as they thought they would. There are all sorts of reports coming in of supply problems, of fierce resistance by the Ukrainians who, who, who have learned a lot since 2014 and are showing it and have got up-to-date weapons. And so I think he's, he's running into a sort of opposition that he simply didn't count on. As someone who has observed so much and studied so much and written about so much history than Margaret, what has surprised you in watching this unfold? I think what has surprised me is the Ukrainian resistance. Um, you know, I didn't think, I, you know, I wondered what President Zelensky would do. I mean, this is someone who had a previous career as, as a comic. I was just watching one of the YouTube videos. I mean, he was funny and amusing, and he, he ran as sort of a, not entirely a joke, but I think a lot of people underestimated him. He's, he's turning out to be an extraordinary wartime leader. I mean, he's, you know, that wonderful statement when, when the Americans offered to get him out, and he said, I don't need a, he said, I don't need a flight out. He said, I need ammunition. Um, and I think he, he's playing a very important role. But I think it's what's really surprised me also is just the performance of, of the Ukrainian army. And it's not just the army. I mean, there are all these reports of housewives making Molotov cocktails, people lining up to, to, to go and, and fight for Ukraine, people going back into Ukraine from countries on the borders such as Poland. And that's really surprised me. And, and I think it's probably surprising Putin as well. Yeah. Do you think this is going to have an impact inside Russia? Then it feels like history is littered with stories of people who go one step too far, right? Underestimate their opponent. Mm. I do. Th I think you're absolutely right. I think it could have a real impact inside Russia. I mean, the fact that people are demonstrating against the war, and they were demonstrating again on the weekend in Russia. I mean, it's an extraordinarily brave thing to do because you you, you know they're whisked off by the police as, as soon as they dare demonstrate. But there were demonstrations not just in Moscow, the capital, but all over Russia. And I think the fact, is, as your, your your business affairs correspondent was saying, the fact that there is likely there is going to be a run on the Russian banks, the ruble has gone down by thirty percent. All of this is is going to make Putin's um, position, I think, could be called into question. I mean, he's enormously strong. He's got huge powers. But this is really going to cause him problems inside Russia. Is it not remarkable, Margaret, when you watch all this happening and think, do we not learn from history? Well, we, we learn what we choose to learn. You know, I think that's the problem. And I think Putin, what Putin thinks he's learned is that Russia has got away with it before. He got, they got away with it in Georgia. They got away with it in, 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 in Crimea. And I think he had assumed increasing the West was disorganized. And he, of course, had done his best to try and uh, divide the West against itself and that it wouldn't respond. I mean, I think he calculated on a Western response, which he should have been more careful about because democracies may take a while to decide what to do. But when they decide to do it, they, they often can be quite determined because they have public opinion behind them. And I think what Putin has done has shown those in Europe and, and in Canada and the U.S. who have said, you know, we can deal with him, he's an ordinary Russian state, but that, you know, maybe we can't. Maybe the only thing to do is, is to oppose him very firmly. One thing that you wrote about definitely in 1919 was how there wasn't really a sense, a huge sense of unity post-World War One. They couldn't get the League of Nations to work. But yet we saw here, there does seem to be this international sense of unity in this situation, doesn't there? I, well, I'm, I'm struck by this. I mean, I didn't expect it, actually. I mean, I'm, I'm amazed that Germany, which for so long has, has been very cautious about um, you know, being accused of being a military power, it has now upped its defense budget by up to, uh, you know, it's, it's made this massive increase. And that Germany is, is 
taking a leadership in this. It's it said that it won't approve the Nord Stream pipeline, which is, was going to bring Russian Russian gas to Germany. So I know I have been very surprised by, by the reaction of, of many different countries in the West. Is this a permanent, do you think, reshaping of the kind of European Union, perhaps, and its relationship with surrounding countries? I think it may be, and I think you know. I think it's 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 going to be a watershed. I think when we look back, whatever happens, because you know it's still not clear what's going to happen and how it's going to end. But I think we'll look back back at it for better or worse as as a watershed in modern history. In the same way that the end of the Cold War was a watershed in modern history, things are not going to be the same after this. And Margaret, I have to ask you: How do you get curious about? Like, how do you decide what you're going to write about? I don't know. It's a good question. Sometimes publishers suggest it, and I think, oh that's not a very good idea. And then I think, oh, that might be interesting. And sometimes it, it just comes to me. I mean, I wrote my last book about war because it's something that's always interested me. And if you study the history of the 19th and 20th centuries, as I do, you'll know there's an, you know, you, you know, there's an awful lot of war in it. And so sometimes it's sort of, I don't know, it sort of just comes to me. And I think, oh, I really would like to write a book on that. You said it's so true that there is an awful lot of war in the 19th and 20th century, yet not so much in the last 30 years. Like we had conflict, but not on the larger scales that we had seen for decades and decades? Well, I think where there was conflict, it was often in failed states, it was civil war, and it, you know, for Canadians, it was far away from us, and for a lot of people in Europe and the United States, too, it was far away, and so there were wars, there, there were continuing wars in parts of the Middle East, uh, there's an, you know, what is, I think, becoming a war in Burma, but these are not wars that have affected most of us very directly, and so I think we've got used to the idea that war is something that doesn't happen won't happen, or if it happens, it'll be somewhere far away. And we may deplore that, but it's not going to affect us directly. And this one is, is much closer to us. And of course, the huge um, Ukrainian population or population of Ukrainian descent in Canada, and they are very directly affected by it. But I think all Canadians are concerned about the breaking of, of international rules and the breaking of international norms. I mean, we've always supported efforts to make peace, and we've always supported multilateral organizations and, and building institutions that will keep the peace. And I, my impression is that Canadians are really shocked by what's going on and, and, and very disturbed. I think that's very true. Do you have an idea of what your next book is going to be about? I'm going to write, funnily enough, I'm, I'm working at the moment on a book about the Second World War, which um, you know seemed like a long way off, but now is coming to seem very topical, because one of the things I'm dealing with is the Soviet Union's attempt to set its borders on its eastern borders, and this is the territory which we're looking at today. And exactly as a direct result of things that happened post-World War II. Uh, Margaret, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, it was lovely to talk to you as well. That's Margaret McMillan. She's a professor emeritus of history at the University of Toronto. But please, if you've never read one of her books, you should definitely pick them up. We talked a lot about her book, War, How Conflict Shaped Us. But my personal favorite is Paris 1919, uh, Six Months That Changed the World. So yes, check that out. This is Mornings with Simi. Just an update from the Canadian government this morning. The Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Finance, Krista Freeland, announcing that effective immediately, all Canadian financial institutions are prohibited from engaging in any transaction with the Russian Central Bank. Now, that is an update on the sanctions situation. Uh, the United States uh, following along that route. But what does that mean? Could there be risks for Canada in doing this? For instance, could our cybersecurity risks really be 
uh, magnified as a result of all of this. Well, joining us now to talk about that, we thought, you know what, let's talk about the cyber situation here. We're going to bring in the expert in hacking himself, Hank Fordham, otherwise known as Hank the Hacker. Hank, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. What do you think? When you see the world reacting in this way, putting all these sanctions on Russia, knowing what Russia is capable of doing in the in the cyber you know, area, what do you think? You know, I, I think that we're, we're all too used to seeing Russia in the news with things like ransomware attacks and uh, the, the lack of consequence from uh, from attacks on, on foreign infrastructure. But I, I think that we're, we're severely underestimating our own skill. I think Canada has a lot of raw talent, especially in the cybersecurity space, and this is a pretty good time to let it shine. And what, what do you mean? Well, I, I mean that with the private sector and, and, you know, with Trudeau trying to start these new cyber plans or the cyber strategy, uh, I, I think it's important as part of that to start including the private sector and really starting to to use some of the talent that, that we have in Canada to make sure that our digital infrastructure is safe. And, you know, that includes making sure that uh, we're being a little bit more cautious in, in who we hire, who, who we let into our, our sense of infra- infrastructure, like training institutes or, or research institutes. Is it too late to be thinking about that now, though, Hank? Like, shouldn't we have been preparing for this? I yeah, I think I think in some ways it is a little bit too late. I, I think of the research institute we heard of in in Winnipeg, where we had Chinese nationals working there, and there was actually warnings from CSIS issued about these kinds of things. So I I, I think there, are, in in some regards, we are a little bit too late, but. Uh, that that doesn't stop the you know the necessity for people to start putting their attention towards cybersecurity and the importance in, in protecting their digital infrastructure. What could be done here? For like, what are we unprepared for? What what kind of attack could happen? You know, there there could be a lot done, and it's a little bit early to speculate on that. But I think in terms of uh, just attacking outdated infrastructure is probably the biggest vulnerability or the biggest possibility and uh, the the best thing people can do to, to protect protect themselves from that kind of thing is just awareness be aware and include training in your your policy for cybersecurity and avoiding things like phishing emails I think um, you know especially training institutes and research institutes they're gonna see a lot more more phishing attacks and um, just basic points of entry attacks. So don't click on anything it feels like these days. Yeah, Hank, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you so much. That's Hank Fordham, also known as Hank the Hacker, an independent security researcher, talking about how we should essentially have our guard up against any kind of potential cyber attack from, you know, Russia, given we know what they are capable of. And the advice is very simple. I mean, I was joking about it there, but it's true. Don't click on anything that you are even remotely unsure of. Actually, don't click on something you're even sure of until you take a second look and make sure that is something safe for you to open up. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. 
40%. That's how much of an increase Vancouver has seen in windows being smashed since 2019. That number comes from the Vancouver Police Department. Chief Constable Adam Palmer talked to the Vancouver Police Board last week and said the force has an ongoing operation called Task Force Agility, and they're trying to target those responsible for all the street violence that we have been seeing, some of which you're even hearing about in the news this morning. So what's it like for businesses having to deal with this? Well, often the VPD says thousands of dollars worth of glass damage is done to a business just so that somebody can steal something that is worth a couple of hundred dollars. How incredibly frustrating. It's a situation our next guest knows all too well. Dave Dove is the president owner of The Goods Screening and Apparel and joins us this morning. Good morning, Dave. Morning, Sammy. You've been through this a couple of times. What happened? Yeah, eight times now. Uh, recently, did you say we eight, got, um, eight times? Yeah, yeah. We've been going for 13 years, so six times at the old shop, two times at the new shop. Okay, when you say times, what has happened exactly? Oh, yeah. Each one of those times I'm talking about, we've had our windows smash and, you know, been either cleared out or we've got higher security now, so they've only taken a couple small pieces. But at the old shop, we got hit for like 30 grand in a season. Okay, so what year was that? Like, has it gotten worse, would you say, in the last couple of years since the pandemic? Well, that would be anecdotal for me. So, like, I'm across the street from Church's Chicken, which has a 24-hour security guard. So I haven't been hit since we've moved to the new shop. But with that being said, you know, getting hit twice in the last season is a huge increase, considering that there's that guy across the street all the time. Yeah, so it seems kind of bold. Exactly. What's being taken? Well, in, you know, in the old place, we'd get hit for, like, you know, all the jeans, hats, whatever. But in the new place, it was just, you know, whatever they saw in the window. So they break the window, cause all of that damage, and just, what, grab a few items and take off? Yep, five grand in glass for two hats. Oh, you've got to be kidding me, Dave. That's so frustrating. Yeah, you could say that. Is Now, you talked about improving security. What kind of things have you done at the business? Well, we've got like bars in front of the window or like on the windows and then behind the display. So even if you were to smash through and get through the first set of bars, there's a second set. It's all about those kind of little deterrents to make it look like it's not worth your time. And has that worked, though? Well, I mean, we've been here for five years and only been broken into twice. But that's got nothing to do with all the shoplifters, right? Right. Okay. Is this something that you talk to other business owners about this, too? Yeah, I mean, like, just, you know, my friends in the neighborhood, we've all got our own issues, depending on what kind of shop we are. And what what do you feel is happening, Dave? When you look in the community, what what's the feeling that you get about why this is going on? Right. Well, I mean, anecdotal, but, you know, it, it feels like just people are really desperate at the moment. If you think about how we had served for, what, a year there, a lot of those people had money. And I don't know, for me, it seemed like crime was down. Shoplifting was down. People were coming in that would normally be the sketchy people you'd have to watch. And they were buying things, kind of feeling human. And then all of a sudden, Serb gets turned off, what, in February of last year, somewhere around there? And the shoplifting goes back up. Break-ins are going up. You know, it just everybody's getting more and more desperate around the area. Okay, and you're saying even though that's anecdotal, that was definitely the sense that you got. Yeah, yeah. I mean... When you can see the people that would normally be stealing from you, on average, coming in and dropping 100 or $200 on clothes just to have something warm for the season, that's got to feel really good for them. And then just think about that desperation that would happen after that was taken away again. So you had that desperation, get to feel like you're human, and then have that taken away again. That's got to be rough. 
what if you like if you talk to the VPD about this? Like, what what are they? What's being done in your neighborhood? Well, I mean, we talk about it in the case of each time we're broken into, but you know, we barely get any responses after like the first or second email. Really? Like, yeah. you just do you feel like they're just too stretched thin? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you noticed how downtown was getting hit really bad, you know, like the tech sector, there was nobody there because everybody was working from home. That whole area was getting smash and grab left, right and center. And then we talked about it more and more with the pundits and the news. And all of a sudden, BPD is targeting downtown, you know, Davy, Robson, et cetera. East Van starts getting hit. It's kind of like whack-a-mole. Right. So what would you like to see happen here? Dave? Like, what, would you, what do you think would work? I mean, if you're going to ask me, I mean, just if somebody could research the numbers of what happened when we had served going out to everybody, I'd say if the numbers were actually lower on crime at that point, I can't say that they were, but, you know, universal basic income, try it out. Right. You feel like people are, are is it a, a desperation thing? Well, preventative measures. Right. You know, well, do you think of businesses, like putting a Band-Aid on afterwards. Right. You talked about the things that you've done in your business. Do you feel like more businesses could do something? I know that people have said, oh, what about like roll down shutters and things like that, like do in New York City? Like, do we need to do stuff like that? Yeah. So I've thought about it. You know, I don't feel like I need to as of yet. But I've also got other friends that, you know, we're saying that if we have to get to that point, like I'm just going to retire. Like they're just done. You know, like if if that's where we're going do you really want to be a retail shop? Really? They feel that strongly about it that they just feel like if they can't leave the windows open like that, they don't want to be in business? Yeah, well, I, I mean, one thing about having your windows open and being able to display everything at night is you are advertising for all the hours that you're not there. People are then going to see it and come back in the next day, right? As soon as you have blocked that off as well, you're actually throwing away free advertising. So... I, you know, I, I could see that being an issue for some people, but I don't think I would quit that easy. That's a big change, I would guess, as well. Just kind of an atmosphere, too, right, when it comes to retail? Yeah. Well, I mean, every time you have to do an added feature to the store, right, one more step, one more piece of friction before you leave at the end of the day, you know, it can either increase or decrease your faith in humanity. And it'll affect you for that next week, right? So each time we get broken into, I have a little bit more distrust for the people that could be sketchy coming in for that next week or two. Right. I think that's only natural, though, right? That's a, a psychological reaction to it. Totally. Totally. Right. So if you have a night to the point where you have to lock three or four separate doors just to leave the store, that's going to do something to you. Yeah, it is. Okay, so then, Dave, what, what do you recommend here? So, you, like, other than doing the research you said into the impact of the universal income, is there anything that can be done by some level of government, do you think, that might make a difference to help people like you? Yeah, I, I couldn't answer that. You know, like, uh, I, I just don't have the numbers. Mine is all anecdotal and a sample size of one, so. Right. It just, just does feel like it's tenuous right now, though, doesn't it? That a lot of people probably are thinking about, do I want to keep doing this? Yeah, I mean, I can't say that there are too many of my uh, associates in the neighborhood that are going, I'm thinking about closing down. But there's definitely a level of frustration. You know, the restaurant's having to get security guards for people coming in and losing their crap about, you know, uh, face masks or anything along those lines. Like, you know, I, I know restaurants that have had people throw chairs at them over wearing a mask. So No. Yeah, yeah. Oh. So, you know, it's, there's enough is enough. Like all of us just want to get back to some semblance of normal so we can just plan for the next season. 
Right. It involves, though, I think a lot of us just behaving ourselves and being nice to each other. Uh, Dave, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Anytime. Okay, good luck. That's Dave Dove, who's the president owner of The Good Screening and Apparel, talking about what's been happening to, well, his business in particular. He said shoplifting actually went down during the first year of the pandemic, but he said it's you know gotten worse again. And his storefront in Hastings Sunrise was broken into twice in two weeks just last December. If you want to weigh in, Simi at CKNW.com. This is Mornings with Simi. With everything that is going on in Ukraine right now, it's inevitable that a lot of new kind of fundraising organizations have popped up, many of them claiming to help Ukraine. But let's face it, some do, some definitely do not. So we thought, how do you sort through all of that? Or our contributor, Raji Sohal, joins us now for more on that. Hi, Raji. Hey, Simi. Yeah, not even one week ago when that invasion started, Right away, you saw people around the world going, okay, what can I do? How can I help? And people started uh, hosting, I noticed, very small fundraisers, even just anything to do their part. Right here in Vancouver, I saw local Ukrainian artists make goods to auction off, paintings, ceramics. I saw a jeweler donate all proceeds, um, all sales for an entire month. And one local Vancouver digital artist was actually part of an NFT auction to sell artwork. Simi, get this, he raised $1 million in less than one minute. No. It's pretty amazing. So people have been doing some incredible stuff to get money to help people that need it in Ukraine. But the Ukrainian Canadian Congress wants to raise awareness about donating to verified fund collectors because some sources online claiming to help Ukraine are not. And people see those links online. They mean well. So they click to donate And sometimes you don't know where that money ends up. And often it is ending up with people who uh, don't have the best of intentions and are not uh, trying to help Ukrainians. We know social media has been really great for raising awareness, but its accessibility also comes with pitfalls. Here's Ukrainian Canadian Congress member Eugene Lupenis. Social media is is where they've set themselves up. And looking through a variety of feeds and through Facebook discussions that we have, uh, there are just a lot of feeds that are opening up. And if you take a, a close look at where they've come from, um, they're not reliable sources. Uh, I, was sent, uh, I was sent a link yesterday and I clicked on it just to, just to see what it was. And it came to an organization that I had never heard of. Uh, I Googled the organization and, and it looked as though it had just recently been set up. Um, there was no... There's no description of where the funds were going to go other than just this general claim that 100% of the money will go to Ukraine. That's so interesting, Raji, because like earlier in the show, we were speaking to Hank the Hacker, who warned against doing exactly that. Like, don't click on anything that is just a link trying to raise yeah. money for Ukraine. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, Lupenis mentions there that you need to vet with Google, but sometimes, Simi, that can even be doctored. People can create false pages and that kind of thing. So he really recommends that you get in touch with their organization, with the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, and because they've got their own list uh, of reliable places that you can donate. And, you know, at the beginning, I was seeing people wanted to send supplies, clothes, food, diapers, you name it, but it's impossible to get that into the country right now. 
and always anyway, Simi, it's, it's about money. Money, sending money is always more helpful. And, you know, there are organizations with different mandates on how to help because I know some people are like, okay, well, I want to donate, but I don't uh, want to donate in general. I want to donate, you know, in a very specific way. And uh, you can do that with some organizations. Ukraine has been unbelievable at continuing to provide essential services, even as they've been shelled, uh, continuing to get uh, ambulances and help to people that need it, which is just incredible. I'm hearing these stories about babies still being born and the mothers being safe after childbirth, after giving birth in you know, subway stations and uh, underground and bunkers, and that kind of thing. So if you feel like giving to a more specific cause, a great place to start is with the Ukrainian Canadian Congress. They have a list of vetted organizations, including one that focuses on medical supplies. Hospitals are unfortunately being bombed at this point. Uh, they are running out of medical supplies. Uh, and the International Medical Corps does provide medical supplies, needed medical supplies to war-torn areas such as what Ukraine's facing right now. If you can't find a grassroots organization, going to something like the Red Cross is, I, I think, a good option. Um, even though we know some of those funds are going to, to go to the administration or the bureaucracy, a good portion of the funds will end up in Ukraine and they will be into targeted areas where the funds are needed. Simi, yeah, he mentioned something there that uh, resonated with me. When I donate to an organization or, or rather to a cause, I'm one of those people who tends to look for the most grassroots way of doing it. Because right. when when I have donated in the past to uh, the Red Cross or to Doctors Without uh, Borders, I've noticed like I get tons of emails afterwards. I get added to newsletters. I get fancy stuff in the mail that makes me go, hang on a second, this must have cost a dollar for them to send out or $2. And, and I wonder about all oh, this money of, that I've donated is being siphoned off to administrative costs. So if, for me, I'm, I am one of those people that's tempted to just give to something that's very small. And legitimately, Simi, there are some great small grassroots organizations. I think the clincher here is that if you're going to do it through a grassroots organization, make sure it's one that's been properly vetted by the people who know first. So the Canadian Congress uh, of Ukrainians is, is a great way to start. I guess it's so hard. It's, you know, it is like whack-a-mole when you think about it yeah. because there's so many scammers that immediately crop up. And I think people have a very instinctual reaction to things happening and they want to help. And if you go and, and it's so, it would be so easy to think you're doing something good when the money is just a scam. Yeah, I saw a social media influencer on the weekend uh, handing out all these uh, informative links, or so she thought. And then she got uh, she's she's got almost two million followers on Instagram. And then she got a slew of messages from Ukrainians from around the world saying, "Hold on, hold on, hold on! You are passing out some misinformation." And a lot of the sites that she had passed along to her almost two million followers were links to sites oh. that were uh, fake and not going to what? help Ukrainians. <laughs> I'm astounded at that because you think, do you not vet anything before you put it out there on social media? I know, right? Well, I think people just uh, in the era of clickbait, they get tempted and they just click. And well, they, they want to get so in easy. on the action is what it is, right? Yeah. They want to think, oh, I want to look like I'm doing something. Uh, and that's that's where the problem happens. Yeah, exactly. So the cautious uh, line here also is to take your time 
to donate. Um, do that research and yeah. make sure that if it is a smaller organization, it is one that's been vetted or nothing wrong with going through one of these uh, big major organizations who are doing so much good work on the ground like Ukrainian Red Cross and like Doctors Without Borders. That is so true. All right, Raji, thank you. Thanks so much, Simi. That's our Raji Sohal there talking about donating to Ukraine in some way, shape, or form, but making sure it's a legitimate organization that you are dealing with. You can actually also go to the Government of Canada's website. They have some information on this as well that just helps you, points you in the right direction about, you know, make sure that this is legit what you are donating to. This is Mornings with Simi. What do you need to know about the travel rules that are changing as of today? I know it feels like for the last two years, travel rules have been constantly changing and shifting and moving, but this is significant almost two years into the pandemic. So let's find out why. Joining us now, Claire Newell, of course, Global BC travel expert and president of Travel Best Bets. Good morning, Claire. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, it is a big day. I wish I was telling you that travel uh, testing had been lifted completely, but we're not quite there yet. Um, but as of 12.01, it's big news that the advisory that the federal government has had in place to avoid non-essential travel outside of Canada has been lifted. Lifted actually once again. It was actually in place uh, for almost two years. There was about a seven-week window, October 20th through until mid-December, where it was actually lifted pre-Omicron, and then we all know what happened. The other thing is is that to return to Canada, whether you're coming across a land border or you're flying back to Canada, you are now able to use a rapid antigen test instead of a PCR or other molecular test. So you can still use a PCR test done within 72 hours. However, for those who have traveled, you know how cumbersome that is. It's really expensive yeah. to get a PCR test. It's also, you know, the, the window of when you're waiting to get the results back can be anywhere between 24 to 48 hours. And I know for some people it's gotten really close to the time before they're leaving. And it's quite, people get quite anxious. An antigen test um, can get a result within 15 to 30 minutes, depending on where you're doing it. Keep in mind, you still need to make appointments for these tests. These are not the ones that you just get at a pharmacy and do at home and that's it. You don't, that is not the test that you are going to be using for travel. It needs to come with a letter, a letter that has your uh, name as appears on your passport, as well as the date and the time, because time is important. This has to be done within one calendar day of your flight or your crossing of a land border. The other thing that I just wanted to clarify late, uh, well, actually, uh, last week, it was actually Tuesday, the Association of Canadian Travel Agents, Simi, did clarify that rule. For many, they've been hearing 24 hours um, before their flight. That is actually not the case. You have a bit, bit bigger window. And that's because if you've got an evening flight, it can be very difficult to get a, a lab or pharmacy to be open when you're trying to get home and do it within that 24-hour window, you have, if you've got to say a flight at 7 p.m. on a Friday, you can have that test done any time of the day on the Thursday. It's It matches right. now what CDC is doing for the U.S. requirement because they also have an antigen test um, before going into their borders. Um, they are moving back to random PCR testing on arrival. So if you are flying into a Canadian airport, you still may be tested randomly, but you don't have to isolate when you're waiting for those random test results. And honestly, the, the results have been taking four or five, six days in some cases. Yeah, so, so for crazy. many people, that, that's a big relief. Yeah. Um, but for families, um, it's good news because as of 
1201 today, children 12 and under who are traveling with fully vaccinated parents or guardians, they no longer need to isolate on arrival. So that's a big relief for families. They can, the kids right. can now go straight back to school, daycare and sporting events. Let me ask you as well. You talked about how specific these antigen tests have to be. It can't just be like a random antigen test anywhere. Yeah, but no. what about those switch, the switch health ones? I know that both WestJet and Air Canada were selling these tests that you can take with you and take and you, you have a video link to verify the results. So I have about 10 of those at home. <laughs> those are the, I'm a humongous fan of them. I think that they're, they're really useful because you don't have to be dealing with making appointments at labs or pharmacies. They are uh, sold to people who are Aeroplan members. So if you're not an Aeroplan member, it's worth joining. It takes about two minutes and it's completely free. But the cost of rapid antigen tests are a two pack for $79. So that works out to $40 a test, much more affordable than the $150 uh, RT lamp or PCR test that they are also selling. So for, for many, it's uh, it comes in very handy. If you're actually going across the border for a day trip, just so that those who are planning to do that, there is no exemption if you're going under 72 hours. I hope that that will be dropped soon. There's a lot of pressure for it to be dropped. But at the moment, you still have to use a rapid antigen test. So the switch health kits that I lo- love and use all the time, um, you can use them. And you do get a telehealth. But you could do it even from your car or a, a hotel or an Airbnb. You just need to have... Uh, a camera on your smartphone. I have done about 10 of them. I've not once had to wait longer than five minutes. And once they right. see you do the swab, put it into the solution and then drip it into the actual device that gives you the test result, you hang up from them. And then the, there's a QR code on the device and you upload that and the, you get the letter that you need with your name, date and time. Right. That it comes back within literally two minutes. Yeah, which is easy peasy. So that's an option. But have people, even with this notice of changes, then Claire, have have there been people booking more travel? What's that no like? No question. Yeah, we're really, really busy. Um, we've we have a home based team as well, and we're starting to to utilize them to take some of the overflow calls and emails. There's definitely pent up demand, and people really looking to book. Some of them are booking imminently, Simi, but others are booking you know well into later in the year. Um, I think that a lot of people are hopeful like I am. I don't have a crystal ball. I always say that. But if I was a betting person, I would say that um, the the tests will be lifted quite quickly after spring break. I think that's what the government is waiting for. There's going to be a huge uptick in travel over that time period. That's mid-December, mid-March, right through until the end of March. And I think, you know, shortly thereafter, right. we'll have an announcement that maybe... Tests will be uh, lifted altogether. Just, um, I will remind people though that you still also have to use the Arrive Can app. Yes. And upload the test. Now, we have heard some people this early this morning um, writing into me saying that they tried to do that and said that there was no option for uh, uh, an antigen. Just go ahead and say it's a PCR and upload the antigen test result. Uh, I think that the government is just a little bit behind. Um, the border agents are, you know, they're all going to be aware that that an antigen test is accepted as of, you know, the wee hours this morning. Okay, now we should be also clear here, though, that for unvaccinated travelers, the rules are not changing. Yeah, no, they're not changing. Um, You still have to be tested on arrival and to quarantine, and you have to have a day eight test. So no changes if you are unvaccinated and crossing into the to back into Canada. Um, The one of the things that I have been asked a lot, Sammy, is how this is going to affect pricing. Um, What I'm seeing is for all of the things that are kind of imminent leaving 
before the end of April. Space is really getting tight, especially if you're looking to go to a hot spot. But we have had notification last week, Air Canada announced that they're going to be significantly expanding their summer 2022 and spring. A lot of flights are going to be loading into the system and taking effect as of tomorrow, March the 1st. They're relaunching 34 international routes, Asia, um, Africa, Europe, Middle East, closer to home, they'll be operating 51 Canadian and 46 U.S. airports. So um, they're really asserting their position as the dominant carrier, but expect a lot of carriers, not just Canadian, U.S. and, and carriers from around the world to start to look to Canada because the testing regime has um, has eased a little bit. It is going to be more attractive to come to Canada, which is really good news for all of the hotels and, and businesses that rely on tourism here in Canada. Okay, so it start. It sounds almost clear like you're pretty hopeful. I'm. I am hopeful. This was a big step forward. I had hoped it would be uh, the like we would go the way of the U.S. and Germany and France and Denmark and other countries around the world that are actually lifting testing completely and really focusing on uh, vaccines and and many vaccines with the booster uh, is now required. I think we'll get there. I think Canada just taking a, a little bit slower approach. Okay, good to know. Thank you so much, Claire. Thanks so much, Simi. Bye. That's Claire Newell from Travel Best Bets talking about the rules that are changing as of today, meaning you now have the option if you're vaccinated of taking a rapid antigen test to return to Canada rather than the much more expensive and more difficult to get PCR test. So that's a big change there. I'm sure lots of people are planning travel. I mean, are you one of them? Are you trying to book something right now? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com.